0: We are in Acts chapter nine, as we're continuing our walk through the book of Acts, and we are looking today at the conversion of Saul, or Paul, and just to simplify things, I'm gonna call him Paul the rest of the time I stand up here, all right? I know he's Saul in Acts nine, but he changes his name, and he's Paul for the rest of the New Testament, after Jesus changes his heart, and so I'm not gonna try to go back and forth. When I say Paul, I mean the guy that's Saul in Acts nine, so that's how we're going with it. You can say whatever you want, I'll know what you mean. But before we read Acts 9, I want us to start this morning in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And there's a reason for that. 1 Timothy is a letter later in Paul's life, near the end of his life, that he writes to Timothy, who Timothy's come along now and has traveled on missionary journeys with Paul and helped Paul start churches. And Paul has been discipling and mentoring Timothy and now he's off somewhere else leading churches and Paul's off somewhere else. And Paul writes a letter to him. To instruct him, give him advice on the way to best help churches and lead churches. And in this section, Paul is talking about, the section we're going to read, he's talking about what happens in Acts 9. And so Paul gives us some insight. Just before we even start Acts 9, I want us to read this. Anytime the Bible tells us how to think about another part of the Bible, I think it's really helpful to listen to what the Bible says. And so Paul's going to say some things right here that clue us in. What he basically says is when you hear my story, Paul's story in Acts 9. Here's what you should hear. Here's what should stand out to you. Here's what it should really drive into your heart. So I want us to make sure that we heard him say this. And so I'm going to read that in just a minute. Then I'll read Acts 9. I think it's the first 31 verses. And we'll be listening for what's this teach us about God. Um, I'm going to pray for us right now before we read First Timothy and ask God to be speaking and teaching and working through his word by his Spirit as only he can. And so if you'll pray that with me right now, that's how we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the opportunity and the privilege and the grace of being able to come together as your people and open up your word in the Bible and have you speak to us and teach us and reveal yourself to us. And we ask that you will do that right now, that your spirit will be the one who teaches during this time that he would teach spiritual truths with spiritual words and speak to our hearts and shape us and form us into the likeness of Jesus and build us into your church as only you can do, Father. We need you to do it. We trust you to do it. And we ask you to do it right now in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Timothy 1, uh, if you want to Look here on the, on the screens and then we'll just go on over to Acts 9 from there. This is what Paul says about his life leading up to his conversion in Acts 9 and then what happens in Acts 9. He says, formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. So this is who he is coming into Acts 9. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. And he says, but the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance "...that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life." And so you hear Paul saying, this is who I was. Blasphemer. Persecutor. Insolent opponent. Opponent. But Jesus came to save sinners like that, and I was the worst that you would ever know. And for this very reason, like because I was the worst sinner you could think of, I received mercy so that Jesus could display perfect patience as an example to everyone who's going to believe in him for eternal life. And what Paul's saying is, when you know my story, and you know what a wretched, violent, awful, blasphemous sinner I was, And you know that Jesus came and he showed me mercy, that he rescued me from that place, and that his perfect patience was enough that he was still patient with me after I had persecuted his church and opposed him and declared that there was no way that Jesus could be the Messiah and the Son of God. After I had opposed him that publicly and that violently, he still had patience and mercy for me. And what I want you to know is that if that's the case for me, this is Paul saying that, that's the case for you. That my story would be an example for anybody who's ever going to believe on Jesus. That you would know that this is the patience that Jesus has for you. This is the mercy that Jesus has for you. This is the grace that Jesus has for you. This is what it looks like when Jesus comes and finds you in your worst place, in your darkest moment, in your deepest sin, and calls you out and changes your life. And this is what Jesus offers to you right now. And so that's 1 Timothy Paul saying When you hear my story in Acts 9, here's what you should hear. And so, look, you've got the cheat sheet this morning, right? When we read Acts 9 here in a minute, you know what you should see. We just read it. Um, But as we're listening, still listen. What's this teach us about God? What are the truths about God that we see in the conversion of of Saul to Paul right here in Acts chapter 9? So if you're there, we're going to pick up in verse 1. We're going to read these first 31 verses. What's this teach us about God? But Saul He said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests?' So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. All right, This is a really good section. What stands out to you this morning? Truths about who God is, how He works, His nature, character. Truths about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Where do you want to start today? God can use anyone as his instrument to accomplish accomplish his will. Yeah, I mean, if the guy who has made it his life mission to arrest Christians and throw them in prison to vote for their execution, that he's, he's busting into their homes and dragging at them out of the, their homes and having them arrested. It's not even just if you're doing this in public anymore. It's just, if I can find you, I'm, I'm arrested. That's how opposed he is to Jesus and his church. If that guy is not too far gone for God to say He's my chosen instrument. I'm going to use him to accomplish my purposes. There's nobody that God can't use. What else? Jesus takes it very personally. when you persecute his followers. We see this right here in verse four. So Saul's arresting Christians, throwing Christians in jail, voting to execute Christians. And the way Jesus says it is, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so something else to think about right here that I think is a great point of encouragement with us, for us, is for you to think that Jesus considers his relationship with you like as his follower, one of his disciples, as a part of his church. He considers his relationship with you so intimate that what happens to you happens to him, right? The suffering that you go through is his suffering. The struggles that you have are his struggles. The things that you face, he sees himself as facing them with you partly just because of his intimate connection to you, his love for you, his identification with you, that that he has been willing in the love and grace of the gospel. When, When the Bible teaches that we've been made one with Jesus, Jesus really sees you that way. He really loves you that way, that you are his, that you are one with him. And then also because he really has come to live inside of you. What happens to you happens to him. Can you grasp the intimacy of Jesus' love for you? of his identification with you, of his nearness with you, that what you are going through, Jesus is going through with you. No matter how hard it is, like, this, is this is a horrible, horrible thing happening to the early church. Uh, This this seems like this is wrecking everything. Everything they believe, they have given their entire lives to the thought that Jesus is king of kings and and he's going to build his church and, and I want him to use me in that way and make him known. And now they're experiencing just the most aggressive, vicious, violent opposition you can imagine. People are dying. People are being thrown in prison. People are being ripped out of their homes and arrested. Like, if you put yourself in that moment, you think, maybe everything's going wrong. Maybe this isn't happening. Maybe Jesus isn't strong enough to build his church. Maybe the religious leaders and the government, maybe they're too big and it's too much and they're going to stop this thing. And in that moment, Jesus said, no, I'm with you in that. I'm going through this with you. I have not left you. I know exactly what's going on. And by the way, I'm still in control. <laughs> and I can flip it like that. Like Jesus is with you. Jesus identifies with you. He enters into your suffering with you. He walks through it with you. What else? Okay, God comes across as very understanding of the disciples' doubts. Explain it a little more. What else do you want to say? You're good yeah so and it it does play out I don't know if you all ever laugh like when you're reading these stories but it does it like this one, one of those that makes me laugh where God calls out, you know Ananias here I am Lord like I'm, I'm listening whatever you want and then he says well here's what I want I want you to go and find this guy named Saul. He's praying. He's seen a vision of you coming to lay your hands on him so he'll regain his sight. And Nice answers, Hey, God, you sure you got the right guy there? Like, I, I know who Saul is. <laughs> I've heard about Saul. Like, I know what he did. You know, that, that church you started in Jerusalem that's gone now? <laughs> that's him. He did that. And now he's here to do that here. It says, Are you sure that's the one? But the Lord said to him, Go. For he's a chosen instrument. And I love this. Like Ananias says, this is who Saul's been. (laughs) Like this is this is what we know about him. And at this point in the story, like as far as you can see, humanly speaking, nothing's changed. Like the very last thing that Saul is doing in the story is heading to Damascus to arrest Christians. Like nothing's changed for Saul, and nothing's changed for the Christians, as far as they know, in relation to Saul. But just the way that God claims him right here. Go for He is a chosen instrument of mine. Yeah, I I know. Yes, Ananias, I know exactly who you're talking about. That's who I'm talking about too. And yeah, he's the one I've chosen. I chose him to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And by the way, I know it's just the one word here, but this ends of the earth as we've been walking through Acts, and we started in Jerusalem. Jesus said it in Acts one It was Jerusalem, and then when the church in Jerusalem got blown up, they spread for the first time to Judea and Samaria. And now here's how, for the first time, to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles, the people outside of Israel. And how does he do it? He chooses someone so unlikely, someone so far from Jesus that no one who's following Jesus can even believe that this is the right person. <laughs> And God's like, that's who I've chosen to get this thing to the ends of the earth. That's how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to bring it about. And so you've got that there with Ananias. And then on down here, you've got the disciples doubting as well, like when when Saul finally comes to Jerusalem. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. They're all afraid of him. And for good reason. Like what happened the last time that Saul was in Jerusalem? They threw rocks at Stephen and killed him, right? And Saul's standing there saying, I approve of that. This is what ought to happen. Now, guess what? I'm going to make sure it happens to all of you. And he's the one, Acts 8 says, that ravages the church and drives it out of Jerusalem. And now he shows back up in Jerusalem. He's like, hey, I believe in Jesus too. They don't believe he's really a disciple, but here's Barnabas again. I hope you have Barnabas in your life. I've had some Barnabases in my life, especially in the past five years, who still believed that it was worth standing beside me when almost nobody else did. And when you get to experience the grace of God through people like that, It deepens your understanding of who God is. And I hope you have some Barnabases in your life. I also hope that you learn how to be Barnabas to other people. That you're the one that comes along, somebody who looks like a lost cause. And you're like, no, I know. I know that Jesus can redeem this. I know what Jesus can do in your life. I don't give up on you, not because there's so much hope about you, but because there's so much hope in Jesus. And so God sends Barnabas, the same one that back in chapter 4, when it said that much grace or great grace was upon the church, he's the one that sells the piece of land and comes and gives the whole thing to the apostles and says, do whatever you need to do with it. Meet people's needs. Take care of the church. Like We see the grace of God impacting Barnabas in such a huge way. And that same great grace that led him to be very generous in chapter 4 now leads him to be very supportive of Paul. And, and yes, in a sense, at great risk to himself, because what if it's not true? What if Paul's not who he says he is now? But Barnabas says, no, this is, this is what Jesus is doing. Look what he says. Declared to them on the road how he had seen the Lord. Like, it's not, it's not that Barnabas believes in Paul. It's that Barnabas believes in Jesus. That he knows this is the work of Jesus, and this is the very thing that Jesus would do. And that Jesus is able to do this. That, yes, even Saul's heart can be changed by the grace of Jesus. And so, yeah, you see... You see God walking, yes, Saul along this path and turning him into Paul, but you also see God walking the early church along this path. This is what Tyson was talking about, walking Ananias along, walking the disciples in Jerusalem along and saying, hey, this is what it looks like when you believe my gospel. Like that, That's not just some theoretical theological thing that you talk about. And it's not just something that you get for you in relation to me. This is also something that redefines the way that you relate to everybody in your life. And that, that's basically what God's showing them right here. Like if you're going to say you believe the gospel, then you will live out the gospel with people who do not deserve it, with people who are far from God in situations where it seems dangerous for you. It will redefine your entire life that gospel truth will define gospel relationships for you. And if you don't live out the gospel in these relationships, the dangerous question is, does that mean that you don't actually believe the gospel truth that you say you believe? And so you see God infusing just more and more gospel grace into the early church and saying it's going to define your relationships. It's going to define the way you look at people. Nobody's a lost cause. Nobody's too far gone. If you believe the grace of God is this strong and this powerful and this life-changing and this heart-changing, What else? God can change anybody in an instant. I thought about this one a lot this week. And I thought about it in two directions. And I thought about it as a really practical application for some of you. I just, I feel certain that some of you have people in your life especially people in your families, maybe children, and I'm talking like adult full-grown children that you have prayed for for years and years and years and they still seem so hard to the things of God and so opposed to Jesus. And, And the first thing that I would just want you to know is that it's not hopeless. I don't know what God's gonna do, I don't know how he's gonna do it, I don't see into his mind in that way, but I can tell you this, it is not hopeless for anybody in your life. Like They aren't too far gone for God to change their hearts, for God to open their eyes, or maybe for God, like he does with Paul, to show them they're blind so they'll finally know they need God to open their eyes. And so it's not too late. Like There is hope. There is a reason for you to pray. There is a reason for you to keep speaking the gospel and keep showing grace and keep extending mercy and, and keep loving them and keep pointing them to Jesus. That's one piece of it. But then also, that gets kind of discouraging sometimes when you're like, oh, I've been doing that for 20 years, and it hadn't mattered. And I also want you to realize that when, when God changes Saul in an instant, there was also a really long period of time where God didn't change Saul. Right? Did, did, did this happen overnight, or was this a really long process? Yes. <laughs> right? Like For his entire life, Saul has been a self-righteous Religious uh, do good on the outside Pharisee who's got so much sin in his heart that if you don't agree with him, he'll kill you for a really, really long time. And the church, you know, we're, we're well into the story of the church now, well into people knowing the story of Jesus, and, and Saul has opposed it and opposed it and opposed it and opposed. and not just once or twice, but like throughout Jerusalem, traveling now outside of Jerusalem, like for a long period in his life, he's heard this story and he hasn't believed it. And so, yes, it's in an instant, and it's also been a really long process. It's been both. And, and I would just say that a lot of times we do see this in the Bible, where it looks like God's doing nothing for a really long time. And it looks like he's doing nothing. It looks like he's doing nothing. It looks like he's doing nothing. And then suddenly he does everything, <laughs> and they're both true. That the, the whole time he's going to do this, and he's promised he's going to do it but it feels forever like he's not doing it. And then all of a sudden he does it all, and you're like, you were always going to do this. Like, you know, you know when Luke writes this story and you go back and Saul's sitting there approving of the execution of Stephen and starting to persecute the church in, in Jerusalem. Like, it looks so dark when you're living it out, but when Luke's writing it later, he's like, I know what's coming. Like, this was always coming. You're just setting him up for this. And it's so much better when he does it. And so I just want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that if you're in the middle of the, it feels like it's been so long and I don't see God doing anything, God's still at work. God's still in control. He's in control when you don't see it at all. And the things that he's going to do, they are coming, and you can trust him and you can believe it. And when he unleashes his grace, there's nothing anybody can do about it. Nothing can stop it. What else? What God uses these instant transformations mm to convince other people, I'm going to add, of his grace, mercy, patience. This is where we started today in First Timothy. Like, why does God do something so drastic with Paul? Like, so overt and mind-boggling. Why? Why? Because we've we've tracked the growth of the church so far and we've guessed you know we know you got 120 followers of Jesus in acts 1 3000 are added in acts 2 by acts 4 it tells us there's 5000 men we guessed maybe that means 20000 people total acts 5 tells us that God's adding more than ever to the church now Acts 5 and 6 is huge growth. And then, that's still all in Jerusalem. And so now in Acts 8 and 9, for the first time, they leave the one city and they're in Samaria and Judea. And we're seeing this great response, for example, to Philip in Samaria. So, I mean, is it 50,000? Is it 75,000? I don't know. You know how many options God has to pick and say, hey, you're going to be the missionary who goes to the Gentiles? You people who've already responded and already get it and already believe in Jesus. I mean, he's got 12 apostles. Just pick one of them and you still got 11 left. But he deliberately picks the guy who's most opposed to him and says, I've chosen him for this. And then in 1 Timothy, where we started today, Paul tells us why. So that other people would look and see the mercy and the patience and the grace of God. Even Paul's conversion isn't just about Paul. Like every week when I say, listen, my life's not about me. Your life's not about you. This thing's not about us. These stories aren't about us. This is about God. This is about who God is. Saul says, Paul says, when you look at my conversion, you should know who God is. Right? Do you realize that's what 1 Timothy tells us. 1 Timothy says, here's how you should study Acts 9. You should read it and know who God is, his perfect patience and his great mercy. Like that's not something we're making up as this is a nifty Bible study method. This is the Bible telling us when you read this part of the Bible, here's what you should get out of it: who God is and patience and mercy. And so, yes, like God deliberately chooses somebody where it looks, it's just it's so attention-getting. It's so hard to believe, it's it's so explicitly obvious that the only explanation is the grace of God changed somebody's heart and chose somebody who never, never, ever would have believed that you would, you would have to say, if God does that for him, he can do that for me and he can do that for them. Right? So that uh, to convince other people, he wants you to read the story of Paul's conversion today and be convinced that that is his grace and mercy to you, that that is his patience with you. That that's His grace and mercy and patience with people who aren't here yet, who seem so far from God and seem like their hearts are so hard and it seems so pointless. Why would we ever speak the gospel to them? Why? Because this is who God is and this is what He does. That's why. Like God deliberately does it in a way where you'll know who He is. And while we're on that, of just seeing like this Bible study method in the Bible, also when you see. Paul, his whole life has been a Pharisee, and we've got other places in the New Testament where he tells us like, just what kind of Pharisee he was. In Galatians, let me flip there real quickly. This is what he says about his life before Jesus, as far as him being a Jew, religious, a Pharisee. He says, For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, and remember, Judaism is God comes in the Old Testament, chooses His people, establishes a nation, and gives them the religion of believing in the one true God, and that is Judaism. Like it's not like this is a bad thing, but it's Judaism without Jesus. It's religion without Jesus is where Paul was before his conversion. He says, so you heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So he's like, take everybody else my age. And I was more passionate about God's religion God's law, the things that God had told us, the traditions that had been handed down to us, I was following them more than anybody else. I was more religious. I was more devoted. I was more dedicated to the things that I believed that God wanted me to do. That's Galatians. In Philippians, he says it this way. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law a Pharisee, like the strictest follower of all. As for zeal, persecuting the church. You want to know how zealous I was for what I believed for the purposes of God? I persecuted the church because I believed so much that that was opposed to the law of God. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. like You couldn't find anything wrong with me in the way I kept the law. That's who Paul says that he was. There has never been anyone (laughs) more convinced that they were doing the right thing and more blind to how much they were missing Jesus. Paul, Paul is completely convinced that he's doing the right thing, that he's following the law of God and the traditions of God's people and that he's defending the religion of God. And he's completely blind to the truth at the exact same time. I mean, do you realize like, how well he knows the Bible? How well he knows the Old Testament? How well he follows the Old Testament laws? If that's his story of who he was. Like, how polished and perfect his religion is. And he's so blind in the middle of that that Jesus has to show up and make him blind. So that he finally realizes, I don't see anything. The whole time that I thought I could see, I've been blind. And so Jesus, he gives us this literal illustration where he blinds Paul. And Paul knows he's blind now, and then Jesus makes him see for the very first time. And every week when we come in here and we pray, when we start, that's why. Because you and I could read the Bible every single week. Paul, he probably had the Old Testament memorized. Like, he knew the Bible. We could read the Bible every single week. We could gather here every single week. You could never, ever miss a Sunday. I guarantee you, like, he was always observing the Sabbath. Like, when he says legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, like, he's not missing anything. And he was completely blind. You can come in here every week, and we can read this every week, and you can be completely blind to who God really is and what he wants to do in your life and in his church and in the world, unless, unless he opens our eyes. Unless the Spirit does what only the Spirit can do. Unless He rips those spiritual scales off your eyes and shows you who He is. Like, it's not just a ritual for us to pray and say, God, will you teach us? Will you work in this stuff? Like, God, will you show us how blind we are without you? Don't let us keep living this this self deception of believing that we can see when we can't. Because we can be so passionate and so zealous about the things that we think we see and be completely blind to who you really are. So show us we're blind. And then when you weaken us and show us how blind we are and make us desperate and needy for you, then please, you open our eyes and let us see for the very first time. And let us see Jesus. And so that's why, that's why we pray that way. That's so why I'm asking you, like, when you study the Bible, when you go to study the Bible with other people, just pray and ask the Spirit to teach. Believe believe that you need that, that that has to be done. And then come and ask, who is God? Like that The Spirit would teach and that we'd ask, who is God? That is the way that we're seeing here, to study the Bible. What else stands out to you? Hmm. So God starts out just, Ananias, here I am, Lord. Like, what do you, it's, not, it's not, hey, tell me what you want me to do, then we'll decide whether or not I should do it. There's this question that's been settled. When Jesus speaks, we follow. When Jesus moves, we go. We're going to follow Jesus one day at a time, wherever he goes. Now Jesus gives him the details, and Ananias is like, oh, what was that? But he knows that it's not questionable still. And Jesus comes back and he's like, No, go. Like, and that, I feel like that being so, just go. Why? Because I told you to. Like I already said, this is what you're going to do. Now, I've chosen him, I'm going to make this work. But I think there is that I'm going to say it this way, Eric. We follow Jesus, and then some contrast here. Not the details, not the plan. not the answers, right? We're following Jesus. It's not, hey, if I've got the details, if I know the plan, if I've got the answers, yeah, I'll go do that because it makes sense. It doesn't ever make sense, right, in this story. Like, it does not make sense until he goes to do this, but he follows Jesus. That Jesus is the one we trust, and, and that's listen, I think that's harder in all of our hearts, I know it is in mine, than we want to admit. Like in me, like, I do feel safety and security and comfort if I know the details, if I know the plan, if I know the answers. And sometimes I trust having those answers way more than I trust Jesus. I trust knowing the plan. Like If I, if I have the answers, I feel secure now. We can do this. And it ought be, no, I know Jesus, and I feel secure. We can do this. I know Jesus, and so this is safe. No matter how risky this is, this is safe because I know Jesus. No matter how much this doesn't make sense, if that's where he's going, that's where I want to be because I know Jesus. We follow Jesus, not the details, not the plan, not the answers. What else stands out to you? We're kind of going along with that. God accomplishes through us by faith and obedience. Things we can't accomplish God accomplishes through us by faith and obedience. Things we can't accomplish. On our own. Okay, yeah, God has this plan to reach the ends of the earth. And He's unleashing it right here. Like He's rolling it out. This is this is as significant of a moment as ever happens in the history of the church. Like it's not a stretch to say that the reason that you know Jesus and sit in this room today is because of what happened in Acts chapter 9. Because this is, this is the gospel leaving Israel to the Gentiles. Most of us in here, we're the Gentiles. You realize it, has, it has to get out of Israel just to reach the rest of Asia and start to spread into Africa and eventually into Europe and eventually, a long time after that, into the, the rest of the Western world and into North America and South America. That's why it gets here, is because God didn't leave it bottled up in Israel. Like, it certainly didn't start. We're the ends of the earth. Like, when we keep reading this, you know, what's your Jerusalem? What's your Judea? What's your Samaria? I don't know because we're the ends of the earth. Like, that, you want to know what covers your neighbors? Ends of the earth. Like, it got to you because God didn't give up on the ends of the earth. And now God's saying, hey, you people on the ends of the earth that I reached, go reach other people on the ends of the earth. But this right here, like, the, the, the massive worldwide work of God is happening right here in this moment. And it's happening with a guy named Ananias who says, I'm scared to death to go talk to Saul because I know that he kills your people. I know that he throws your people in prison. And Jesus says, go. I've chosen him. And Ananias goes. Ananias can't launch a worldwide movement of God. Right? Ananias has no idea in that moment that God's going to literally reach the entire world with the gospel, plant churches around the world because he goes obediently and extends grace to Saul. This man who was persecuting the church and murdering Christians. And when Ananias shows him grace at the word of Jesus, God explodes his church all over the world. I mean, this is incredible. Don't underestimate when Jesus calls you to do something that doesn't make sense. What he may be doing. The spark of grace that Ananias shows right here ignites the fire that God uses to burn the whole world with the gospel. What else? <laughs> let's, let's make that an application question. That's so good. Do you believe that God can change Someone this and yet lots of things. Hard hearted, murderous, self righteous, blind. Just I mean you could just add to the list. And what we're really asking right here, and this is a great question for us to ask this morning. Do you believe God? is this powerful? Do you believe God is this gracious? Do you believe He's as powerful as do you believe He can? Do you really believe that by His Spirit and His grace, God can reach into a cold, dead, black, sin-filled heart and bring it to life? And come to live in that heart by His Spirit? A new life, a new creation. Is God able to change people that way? That's what, if you believe he's that powerful. Then do you believe God's as gracious as you may think that he can? Do you believe he actually does this? That he's willing to do this? He wants to do this. That this is what he does. And, And then ultimately what we're asking, combine them. Do you believe the grace of God? Is this powerful? Because I think there's a tendency for most of us to keep taking the human approach to religion and to say, hey, we're going to train people in some goodness. We're going to train people in some behaviors they should have. We're going to develop these programs that, that you take these steps and this is how you grow over time. And we give people our own version of the law. And then we wonder why this type of internal transformation never happens. And we aren't willing, I honestly think this is the way to say it, we aren't willing to take the risk of believing that grace could be this powerful. That grace could be the answer for your heart and my heart and everybody else's heart. And that the best chance that any of us ever have of having our hearts changed and our lives changed is the supernatural grace of God doing a work inside of us that no one else and nothing else can do. we we struggle to believe that this is really who God is and this is really what the gospel is and this is really what he does through his gospel and that's why we're timid about it instead of being bold about it that's why we look for a hundred other answers and a hundred other religious answers and that's why when we read this story I'm saying just like God did with these early disciples in the church he keeps prompting us and pulling us along and leading us and if you really believe my gospel if you really believe my gospel, this is what it looks like in relationships with other people. You believe my grace. You believe the power of my grace for you and through you to others. You become Ananias. You become Barnabas. What else? People have tried to kill the church. from the beginning and will until the end they're going to keep trying but the church will prevail somebody tell me why why will the church prevail yeah you said God's word first. I'll go, because Jesus made a promise. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Like he's already said it, It's done. I mean, you go back to Genesis 1. This is the person, the being, the God, who says, let there be light, and light exists now. Right? Like when he speaks, it is. And he said something about his church. He's made a promise. It's done. Now, we don't understand. All that. I don't understand the details of how when you say, let there be light, suddenly there's light. I just know it's true. And I don't understand the details of how he's building his church. I don't know all the ways it's working. I don't know all the things that he's doing behind the scenes that right now look like really dark moments like this. But the truth is the moment's coming when he's going to redeem the whole thing and flip it all around we're going to be like, oh, that's what he was doing. But I promise you he's doing it. Like I promise you he is doing it. He made a promise and he keeps his promises. What else stands out to you? A couple more. Jesus gives peace to his followers in the midst of turmoil. We've seen a lot of turmoil so far for the early church in the book of Acts, and the church has grown the whole time. Like the turmoil has not stopped Jesus for a moment, and now we get down here, and we get a time of peace. All of Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace, and now... They keep growing, right? Jesus keeping in, in times of turmoil, Jesus is keeping his promise. In times of peace, Jesus is keeping his promise. Which just tells you the promise of Jesus isn't dependent on those external circumstances. They don't make it happen, they don't stop it from happening. He's making it happen. One more? Give us an application. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great application. Let's talk about that for a minute. So Saul before he knows Jesus is absolutely opposed to the church, right? Disagrees with them extremely. And the way he handles that is I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to beat you to death because I think you're wrong. When Saul gets converted and becomes Paul, do you know what he thinks about all these religious Jews and Pharisees? He disagrees with them extremely. (laughs) He knows that they are wrong and he's relentless. Like you read this last part, right here. Saul increased, starting in verse 22, all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So now he's opposing the Jewish religious leaders and the Jews so much, he's speaking so boldly about Jesus that they want to kill Paul for that. They get him out of Damascus. He comes to Jerusalem, takes the disciples a while to decide they're going to accept him. Barnabas gets him in, and then he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, those would be the Greek Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. And so it's not like when he, when he goes from religious Saul, who's this really bold, outspoken person, against Jesus, it's not like when he comes to, to faith in Jesus that he goes, he's quiet now. He doesn't stop talking about what he believes is true. He's just as bald in talking about Jesus as he was before. He's just as, in a sense, confrontational. he's, He's just as controversial. It's just he's saying, oh, Jesus is the Son of God. So that's not what changes. But think about what changes. Before, he hated these people who he disagreed with and wanted to kill them. Now, he loves these people he disagrees with, and he wants them to believe in Jesus, and he's willing to let them kill him. Right? I'm going to keep, I know you're going to kill me for this, but I'm going to keep talking about Jesus anyway because you have to know about Jesus. And so the change is that he goes from when I disagree with you, I hate you, and I hate you so much that I would really like for you to be dead, to when I disagree with you, I still love you and I know you need Jesus, and even if you try to kill me, I'm still going to give Jesus to you. And you're right, like the way that we should relate to the world when we disagree with the world should look completely different than the way the world will relate to us. Let the world relate. Let the world oppose us. Let the world buy billboards. We don't need to buy a billboard. Go love the people who bought the billboard and tell them about Jesus. Let them buy a hundred more billboards. Hey, you're the billboard. We don't need a billboard, right? You have the Spirit of God living in you. That, that's a dead tree. You have the Spirit of the living God in you. Tell them about Jesus and love them the way Jesus does. And let's see what he does with that. That's how he's built his church the whole time. Always. He's always kept his promise. Nothing has stopped him for 2,000 years. Nothing's going to stop him now. He's got a really good track record at this point. Do you believe this is what he does? Do you believe this is what he might do with you today, with us today? Like this might be exactly what he's doing right now. Because it's always what he's been doing. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a few minutes. Um, I want to share a few more truths. I just, I'm telling you that because you get your heart ready. And I think we've seen it all. I mean, you see the gospel in the story of, of Paul. But, and we've said this stuff, We've already, but I'm going to write them down just so they come out explicitly. The first thing that stood out to me at the very beginning... Jesus comes to find us in our sin. Saul is not looking for Jesus. Saul is in the middle of heading to another city to arrest followers of Jesus, and Jesus comes to him in that moment. Don't sneak in some sort of self-validation and self-justification where you think, the reason God saved me is because I was trying so hard to find God. You weren't. You weren't. You were trying to be God. You were trying to live like you were God, like you were the answer for yourself and all of your goodness and your religion and your self-righteousness, and God came and found you. And when you were so lost and so blind that you never would have found your way, Jesus comes to find you. Jesus came to a world that had rejected him, and he loved that world to the point of death. His body was broken. His blood was shed. That's why we take the Lord's Supper this morning, because Jesus came to find you. Jesus came to find me in our sin. I know we said this, but Jesus shows us we're blind. And then Jesus makes us see. When you take this bread and this cup this morning, let your eyes be opened by the grace of God in Jesus. Think about what it says about you and me that your sin was so awful. You were such a lost cause that the only answer was for the infinitely valuable and glorious Son of God to have His body broken on a cross and His blood poured out to rescue you. That's how desperately lost you were. And that's how wondrously gracious He is. Yeah, you're this far gone. And yeah, He loves you this much. Let your eyes be open to the wonder of that today. Jesus' grace strong enough to completely change your life what are your reasons why you think that God won't use you that God won't do this through you that it can't? what are the things in your mind that pop up of I don't have this or I've already done this or this was too bad or or I'm not qualified because of this or I'm not good enough in this way what are your reasons It's not anything more than what Paul had going against him, I promise you. And when you see the perfect patience of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the grace of Jesus to choose Paul, to change Paul, and to use Paul, make sure you see the perfect patience of Jesus towards you and the mercy of Jesus towards you and the grace of Jesus towards you to choose you change you, and to use you. His grace is more than enough for whatever you've got going on in your heart. His grace is more than enough for whatever you need in your life to be who he's calling you to be. He's not asking you to do it. He's asking you to trust that he's going to do it through you. See that today in the story. Paul says, this is what you should see in my story. Make sure you see it today. And then the last thing I was going to say, we talked about Barnabas earlier. But Barnabas. When nobody else believes in Paul. But Barnabas. Grace to Paul, a second chance for Paul, a clean slate for Paul, somebody to stand up and speak on Paul's behalf and say, no, he's accepted here now. Barnabas is a great example for us. But make sure you see that it's not Barnabas. It's Jesus. Why does Barnabas do this? Because he knows that Paul had seen the Lord. Barnabas didn't change Paul. Barnabas didn't change Paul's heart. Barnabas didn't change Paul's life. Barnabas just knew that Jesus had done it. And so the last thing I would say, we said this last time we got Barnabas chapter 4, because he's such a good figure, but make sure you always see as good as Barnabas is, Jesus is better. Barnabas just said, hey, I know Jesus did this. Jesus is the one who did it. Jesus is the one who said, yeah, yeah, yes, he's persecuted my church. Yes, he's killed my people. Yes, he's violently opposed to me. Yes, he's been blasphemous and spoken blasphemy against my name. Yes, and I choose him. Jesus is the one who said, no, he's accepted. Somebody speaks on his behalf. Jesus spoke on behalf of Paul in the presence of God. And he said, all this stuff that he's done against me and against my name and against my church, it's not held against him. I took it on the cross, and I died for it all. Jesus pulled it all off of Paul and put it on himself, and then he put his own righteousness on Paul, and he said, this is why he's accepted. This is why I can choose him, and I can use him, and he'll be part of my church. This is why he's accepted in the kingdom of God forever. Jesus did that. And that's the exact same gospel that Jesus offers to you and to me and to the whole world. And he's saying, I choose you. I choose you to make this known. Nobody's too far gone, not if I'm willing to accept them. And so, as we take this bread and this cup this morning, hear Jesus saying, Here's my approval. Here's my love, here's my mercy, here's my grace, here's my perfect patience. I'm not worn out, I'm not tired of you, I'm not giving up on you, I'm not writing you off as a lost cause. My patience doesn't run out like that. This is how I love you, and this is how I'm calling you to love people. Yeah, be like Barnabas, but be like Barnabas because Barnabas was like Jesus. Because Jesus lived inside of Barnabas. And Jesus lives in you by his Holy Spirit. Let us be this type of church. And so I'm going to pray that right now. And if we pray, pray that God will open our eyes. Our children, our elementary age children are going to come in with us here in just a minute and they're going to take the Lord's Supper with us and we're going to worship together as families. And so That's where we're headed, just a time of worship and response and asking God to work on our hearts. So let's pray together right now. Father, thank you for Jesus and his perfect patience and his unfathomable mercy and his wonderful grace. Thank you that he chooses people who are a lost cause. That when we are so far gone that there is no way for us to ever find our way back that he comes and finds us. thank you that it is because of you and not because of us and that's why we can trust it and we can believe it and we can know that it doesn't change. Father, please melt our hearts with the truth of your grace and the truth of your gospel. Open our eyes to really see the new start and the second chance and the grace that you have given us And open our eyes so that we would believe that for others. As we live out your gospel and your grace as you live in us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you have elementary age kids, we're going to be bringing them in in just a second. Would you stand up for just a minute? We're going to take just a minute to get them in here and get them with their parents. So stand up so they can see you. And once your kids find your way to you, you can sit back down if you want to. And I'm going to read just a few verses here from Isaiah 53 as we're thinking about the Lord's Supper and what Jesus did for us when he died on the cross. And in all these verses, I want you to listen to the exchange that takes place, the, the divine trade that God made for you. What he takes that ought to be yours and he gives it to Jesus. All the horrible, awful things that you don't want to endure, and he trades all that to Jesus for you, and then the things that he takes from Jesus and gives to you that you could never deserve in exchange. Just listen to him in these verses. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we ex- esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? All of your sin all of your failures, all of your flaws, all of your transgressions, every time that you've crossed the boundary and missed the mark and fallen short, all of it taken off of you and put on Jesus. That's why Jesus can choose Paul. That's why Jesus can accept Paul. That's why Paul's not too far gone. It's not that he's ignoring what he's done. It's not that he's minimizing. It's not that he's just brushing it off. Right, He said, I'll take every bit of it for you and I'll pay the full price and I'll die in your place. I'll be crushed for you so that you can be healed and made new and you can live for me. And that's why Paul can spend the rest of his life not hanging his head in shame and not hiding, but speaking boldly about Jesus and even decades later writing a letter to Timothy and saying, Hey, I don't have to pretend that didn't happen. I can talk. This is who I was. I was blasphemous, I was insolent, I was a violent opponent. My past is as awful as you've ever heard, Timothy. And Jesus took all of it in his perfect patience and his infinite mercy and he put it on himself. And he healed me and he made me new and he gave me peace with God. That's why we do this today, to remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So as you take the bread... Remember Jesus' words. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take the cup. Jesus said, this cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. As you're ready, stand up and let's worship and sing together.